Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Information is a gift, right? You have brought me information I can do something with to make my company a better place. And if you think of the employee who raised the concern that way, you're going to have a very different interaction than if you think of them, to use your daughter's phrase, as a snitch. That was Erica Salmon-Byrne, CEO at Ethisphere. This is Tom Fox. Erica joins me for this episode to explore Ethisphere's 2023 culture report. It has several significant findings, which every compliance professional will want to understand, look at, and perhaps incorporate responses into your compliance program. It's a fascinating visit with one of my favorite people in compliance. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and I'm thrilled today to have back with me Erica Salmon-Byrne, the CEO at Ethisphere, and we're going to talk about the 2023 Ethisphere Ethical Culture Report entitled Lessons from the Pandemic, Accountability, Reigns, and G-Zen Reframes. Erica, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me, and welcome back. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me, and particularly for having me to talk about my favorite topic. So um, I have to say that I don't think that title really fully encompasses all the information you guys have in this report. I've read it several times, and there is just a ton of information. So if I could, could I ask you to start with the eight pillars? Yeah. Because that seems to frame everything else. But standing alone, that's just great information. So could we start with the eight pillars? Absolutely, we can start with the eight pillars, Tom. So the eight pillars of ethical culture are the, the, the questions that we ask when we do this work on behalf of a company. And we developed this survey with a very specific lens on gathering the information that our core constituency, the, the ethics and compliance professional, would want to understand about the company's speak up culture. And really the eight pillars are different ways of asking the same basic question. And that's just good survey design. So you can make sure that you've got, you know, you can trust your answers, but it's basically, are your people comfortable raising their hand? Do they trust the process? And will they tell you when they need help? That's really at the end of the day, what an ethics and compliance professional needs to know about the you know, places in which they operate. Because DOJ right now is, banging on all of us to self-disclose, right? Well, you can't self-disclose what you don't know. And so that's really where this work comes in is how are employees feeling about what they're seeing, about whether or not they're willing to engage in the act of courage to raise their hand and how the, how they feel about the process when they do that. So could we start with what did Ethisphere find about corporate culture during the pandemic? Did it hold up or did it go in perhaps another direction? Yeah. So 
This was a really fun report to do, Tom. So one of the things that caused us to issue this report is during the course of the pandemic, we hit a milestone, which was 2 million employee responses. So we had a really great, fun, giant N that we could play with looking at what we saw in the data. So what we did for this report, we did a couple different kinds of cuts, but one that we did was all the data that we had collected on these survey questions from up until March of 2020, and the data that we collected on these survey questions after March of 2020. And that was kind of the way we divided that particular piece of the analysis. And what we found was, for the most part, cultures held up pretty well. Employee willingness to raise their hand stayed pretty steady. Rates of observed misconduct, for the most part, with one caveat we'll get into in just a second, went down, which makes sense. You know, we're, we're all working, you know, many of us are working from home at that point, so we're not necessarily right next to our colleagues in the same way that we used to be. That said, one particular type of observed misconduct spiked during the course of the pandemic when we compare it to the pre-pandemic numbers, and that is reported observed cases of bullying. We saw a very significant uptick in reported cases, observed cases of bullying during the course of the pandemic. And I attribute this to a couple of factors. It's a lot easier to be a jerk behind a keyboard than it is to be a jerk to somebody's face, right? So we all go home, or those of us who are privileged enough to work from home go home. And the stress of the pandemic eroded some of the civility that we used to use in the workplace. So I think that's one piece of it. And then the second piece of it, and this goes into the other big section of the report, was the increased number of Gen Z employees who are now part of our workforce. And the kids have the language on what bullying looks like. Uh, and they are they are willing to, to name it as bullying in a way that I don't think prior generations necessarily had. So I think those are kind of the two main factors that are driving that that significant increase in observed in, in reported incidences of observed bullying. Is that that they can put, characterize a communication as bullying, or is that mean that communications you and I might have blown off, for lack of a better term, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, is now perceived as something else? I think it's a little bit of both, Tom. And I think that is something that ethics and compliance teams should partner with their HR partners and try to figure out how they're going to handle, because I think it's a little bit of both. I think that some things that we might have just, you know, taken from a behavior perspective are things that that the, this generation is not willing to tolerate. And in the end, I think that's a good thing for all of us, but it does require us to think about training managers differently. It requires us to think about training each other differently. And when I talk to companies, particularly the companies that we did the culture survey work for, with, about these particular results, they are absolutely reporting an analog, you know, sort of analogous upticks in this kind of improper communication activity in their own organizations and in their own systems. So it correlates very nicely with the lived experience of a lot of the companies that we work with that younger employees in particular are saying, I don't particularly care for the way that you're speaking to me. And I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to take it. Uh, let's turn to section two, the kids are not all right. And here I'm going to start with my daughter is right on the cusp. She's 26. Yep. Just turned 26. So she's right on the cusp between a millennial and a Gen Z. And I can remember 10 years ago when I was, when she was 15 or 16, 
I was trying to explain to her what a whistleblower was. Mm-hmm. And she goes, oh, yeah, that's a snitch. And I thought, hmm, I have a little education to do here. Mm-hmm. And she particularly was concerned that it would be a girl tattling on another girl within the sisterhood. So I've thought about that example a lot over the years, and hopefully I've convinced her that it's not only okay, but but appropriate for her to raise her hand and speak up. But is is that the sort of problem we are fighting now? Or is it something that just something else going on in the numbers you guys saw? Because you're right, this really was pretty dramatic, this section of the report. Yeah, I think it's some of it, I think, Tom, is, is a little bit of an education piece that we need to be thinking about, and particularly thinking about how we reach this group of the youngest employees that we have inside of our organizations right now, because they don't have a lot of faith in the system to be able to raise their hand and, and address things appropriately. So if you look at the reasons that the youngest employees gave for not saying something when they saw something, we saw things like, the person who did it was senior to me. So this kind of idea that I don't want to raise my hand and talk about something that a person who was senior to me did. Or we saw a fear of retaliation. Um, you know, something bad would happen to me as a result of raising my hand. And so those things are, fortunately for all of us, things that we can educate our youngest workers about to say, look, this is the way the system works. This is why we need to hear from you when you see things in the workplace, because then we can make things better. And it's that we can make things better piece that I think is, is, the, is, the, is the hook that we ought to try to hang this messaging on. But it's also really important to think about how we're doing that messaging. Because some of the messaging modalities that worked really well for you and I are not going to work for your daughter, right? We need to be thinking about shorter form video. We need to be thinking about TikTok type, you know, communication styles or things that we're doing on the company Yammer system. And we really need to be thinking about our managers because those are the people who are going to be able to show your daughter that it is okay for her to say something when she when she sees something, if it's in the interests of, you know, sort of the, the greater organization. This set of information really caused, caused me to ask, want to ask you some questions around every company will say, we don't retaliate, we have a policy against retaliation. But I was wondering, mm-hmm. within Ethisphere or even the Baylor communities, have you worked with companies to put specific systems in place to monitor that issue so that just as any part of a compliance program detect, prevent, and remediate? Yeah. Yeah. No, we've had a, we've had so many conversations about this, Tom, inside of the community and, and also inside of Ethisphere because the challenge is, of course, you have a non-retaliation language in your code. Everybody's got non-retaliation language in their code, right? But the the focus for too long has been on illegal retaliation, right? The reason you have non-retaliation language in your code is because it's against the law to retaliate. Instead, flipping that around to say, the reason we have non-retaliation language in our code is because information is a gift. And people who bring us gifts should not be punished inside of our organization because that information is something we can do something with. And so there are a couple of things we see companies doing right now to try to get at that retaliation piece that are thinking about it from the perspective of the employee as opposed to the perspective of the litigation risk that the company might face if they retaliate. It's a very different way of thinking about it. And 
one of the things that, that we're seeing, two, two things I will call out for your listeners, one is talking to managers about why, that, why we want to hear from employees and, and really starting from the business case of, look, a speak-up culture doesn't end at the boundaries of the ethics and compliance program. A speak-up culture is one in which your employees are comfortable coming to you with new business ideas. And every manager would want to create an environment where their teams are engaged and productive. And so starting from that perspective of, look, think of the information as a gift, practice thinking of the information as a gift, and then your responsibility as the manager is to listen and follow up. And really talking about that, acknowledging that managers are the most likely people to engage in retaliation from an employee's perspective, right? What I'll call softer retaliation. One of my favorite stories in this regard, Tom, is I was talking to a compliance officer one day uh, late last year, and I said, how are you doing? And she said, I just closed my fastest investigation in the history of my career. It took one phone call. And I said, what do you mean? She said, we had an employee raise a concern. I, you know, we did the investigation. We closed it out. A couple of weeks later, I got a call from her to say, I really feel like I'm being retaliated against for raising this concern. And so I, you know, opened an investigation into the retaliation allegation. And the manager's response when I, when I went to talk to the manager was, I don't know how I could have retaliated. I haven't spoken to that person in six weeks. This <laughs> <laughs> officer was like, what do you, you do daily standups with your team. What do you mean you haven't spoken to this person in six weeks? And very well-meaning manager who just froze, didn't know what to do, knew there was an investigation in their particular part of the, the business because they had been interviewed as part of the process, just froze. And right. so really talking to managers to say, look, this is how it's going to work. This is what we need from you. This is what it looks like to engage in, in behavior that chills speech inside your particular part of the business. And at the end of the day, this is what we need you to not do. So training your managers, point number one. Point number two is leverage your systems. So think about the things that you are collecting data on as an organization that would give you an indication that a particular employee might be experiencing something negative as a result of raising their hand. So you can look at changes in performance evaluations. You, if, you're, if you're a company that does formal performance evaluations, you can look at layoff and RIF lists, right? So if you are doing a reduction in force, making sure that there isn't anybody on that list that had recently raised a concern, making sure you're part of the process to screen those lists in the first place. One of the ones I love that we are starting to see some companies do is tracking patterns in sick day usage. So do you have an employee who has never taken a sick day all of a sudden, post-investigation, they're constantly calling in sick. That's an indication that there might be something wrong in that particular part of the business. So think about the systems that you have access to that might be able to help you paint a little bit of a picture. And then very simply following up with the person who raised the issue in the first place. A, making sure that you close the conversation with that particular person at the end of the investigation, following back up if you know who they are. Thank you so much. We've closed the investigation. I'm not going to get into what happened, but we really appreciate you coming forward. Establish that relationship with them so that they know that it's, it's, it's resolved from the company's perspective. And then they're more likely to come and talk to you if something else comes up. And then five or six months later, if you happen to be in that particular part of the, of the world and you have a chance to swing by and say hi to that person, swing by and say hi to that person, right? I mean, the, this is somebody who has given, but again, this requires that philosophical attitude change of information is a gift, right? You have brought me information I can do something with to make my company a better place. And if you think of the employee who raised the concern that way, you're going to have a very different interaction than if you think of them, to use your daughter's phrase, as a snitch. Uh, I will have to say, first of all, that's a brilliant insight. 
of information is a gift. And hopefully we're not much more than halfway through this, but I think we've, I've already gotten the biggest takeaway I've gotten. That's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I hope you guys can do a whole campaign around that. Um, because that is a, is a hugely uh, significant mind shift. And if we can get people to start thinking like that, the whole system falls into place. Yep. Oh, I may have to write on that. <laughs> I hope I can quote you. Absolutely. Okay. So going on, um, I was intrigued by the change in reporting by gender with a rather dramatic increase in those who identified as either a third or non-binary gender. Mm -hmm. Is that because perhaps there was more discrimination against that group or more perceived discrimination? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, so that was a slightly smaller demographic group because not every company that we work with asks that question from a, from a, demographics perspective, but it was a, an interesting enough trend that we included it in the report. And, you know, I think that, I think it's, I think there are a couple pieces there. I do think people who identify as non-binary or, you know, a third gender or choose not to identify themselves at all are probably more on edge about their place in the system, inside their organizations. And so they are less comfortable raising their hand if they see something. And again, this goes back to this concept, Tom, that you and I have talked about before, that raising your hand is an act of courage, right? It is it is the decision of an employee to say, I don't think what's happening here is right. And whether they ultimately turn out to be right in that determination or not, the, the fact that they chose to speak up is something that ought to be celebrated. And I think particularly if you look at the other data we have in the report around the way that most employees raise their hand, which is to a manager, right? So the vast majority of employees, at a global level, employees are six times more likely to call their manager than to call the hotline. So all of our great work promoting hotlines, yes, we have to have them. They're lovely. They're wonderful. People don't use them, right? They want to talk to people. People want to go talk to people uh, is, is the lesson that I take away from the data particularly in places like Europe, where employees are 22 times more likely to go to their manager than call the hotline, right? There are um, national stereotypes about the idea of calling a hotline or using the term whistleblower that cause people not to want to use those particular functionalities, right? Those particular modalities of raising their hand. They're going to go to HR. They're going to go to their manager. They're going to talk to somebody they trust. That's just the reality. And so if you don't have a good relationship or open communication with certain members of your team, perhaps because they present as different than other members of your team, the natural outtake of that is going to be that they're not comfortable speaking up when they experience something that they don't think is right. You actually co-opted about three quarters of the questions I was going to ask next. So I'll just ask some follow-ups. Sure. I was really struck by that data in section three of the report and frankly shocked, not that the immediate manager was the number one avenue to report concerns, but some of the other structural uh, um, formations or formats that I would have thought would have received more didn't. So going to E&C, going to the hotline, mm -hmm. I suppose going even going to the board, because every board now says they can intake that. And it really struck me or even going to the manager's manager, if they were afraid mm -hmm. to go to the manager, was still going to your direct manager. Yep. And that really struck me as 
information far beyond our compliance and ethics sphere, that that's where the key relationship for employees for the entire organization is, mm-hmm. is, is that your frontline manager and what we call middle management. And as much as I think we have invested in training in middle managers over the past five years or so, we may need exponentially increase that because that's where the communication is. And it also struck me that it's not going to just go from the employee to the middle manager. It's going to go the other way as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Tom, manager training and particularly effective manager training is the hill I'm going to die on. Like I, you know, that is, that is my, you know, that is, that is my message that I am going to shout from the rooftops because what the data tells us is the single most influential entity person on a particular employee's experience inside your organization is their direct manager. That is the person who is going to influence their behavior. That is the person who is going to receive insights from them on things that are happening. That is the person who is either going to encourage them to speak up and use their voice or discourage them from doing that. So then eventually they're probably going to leave, right? And so thinking as an ethics and compliance professional about how do I get to those managers with the right messages? How do I partner effectively with human resources to make sure that any leadership development, particularly that new managers are doing, includes the kind of messages that I need, right? This is a place where a strong partnership between HR and compliance can really make a tremendous difference on the culture inside of the culture inside the organization. And your managers, they are so, so important. And more often than not, what we do is we train them on how to use the time off system and the, the, the expense report approval system. And then they maybe get a little bit of performance, you know, assessment or, you know, sort of leadership development work and we wish them well. And they go out into their teams with primarily business-related objectives to, to deliver on. And then they count on the ethics and compliance team to be the only ones saying, do it the right way. They're just saying, do it. And then the ethics and compliance teams are saying, do it the right way. And what we see in our data is if a manager talks about ethical decision-making, if they talk about how they made a particular decision, if they talk about conflicts of interest or avoiding bribery, any of those issues, the employees reported faith in the system triples. And they just need to be doing it four times a year. So really thinking about how do I prepare my managers to lead the way I need them to lead? Who do I need to partner with to make sure I'm getting that messaging out? And then how do I do it in such a way that I'm giving them tools they can use? That's, that's, the, that's the challenge that I would lay at the feet of all of your listeners is really go figure out how you're doing those pieces because your managers are absolutely the central key for everything else you're doing. Um, you started off this podcast by talking about the regulatory aspect in form mm-hmm. of the Monaco memo and the changes to the corporate enforcement policy. And I'd like to end by maybe talking about those a little bit more because the Monaco memo and least Monaco's speech announcing it certainly talked about that, but in early January, we had specific changes to the, the Department of Justice's corporate enforcement policy. And they made clear that, number one, uh, to get the largest amount of discount or a full declination, you have to self-disclose. You can't self-disclose it unless, of course, you know about it. Right. But that they would, if they would evaluate a corporation's compliance program at two points, one when the incident occurred, two 
at the end of the process uh, after remediation occurred. And they would evaluate further the first point when the incident occurs of whether there was internal controls which picked it up or there was a reporting system. And so now the Department of Justice has told us specifically that they're going to judge your compliance program by whether you detect it. Mm-hmm. And that's what this whole report spoke to me as a yep. detection mechanism. And I just wanted to get maybe your thoughts on how the regulators are, are emphasizing this even more. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, Tom, and we've we've seen this, you know, I mean, from, from my time in private practice, defending companies, you know, from the work that you have done, every time something goes wrong inside an organization, there was somebody who knew, right? And more often than not, the often multiple somebodies who knew. And more often than not, the somebody who knew was maybe not involved in the misconduct, but they had a sense of what was happening and they didn't say anything. And that, I think, is the piece that the regulators are pushing companies to think really carefully about. Where are the places where you never hear from your employees? Where are the places where you're never getting anything disclosed? And what is happening inside those parts of the business so that you are getting a fulsome sense from your employees who, at the end of the day, are your first line of defense, right? You're getting a fulsome sense from employees of what is happening in that side of, in that part of the business so that you can continue to make sure you're, do, you're doing business the right way. And if you don't have those systems, and particularly, this is the piece that I like about some of what the government is saying right now, recognizing that you need to have different ways for employees to raise concerns because every employee is going to raise their hand differently. So yes, you know, we need to have hotlines as publicly traded companies in particular, But think about the ways in which your organization actually receives information and make it as easy as possible for employees to tell you what's going on, whether that is, you know, making it possible for managers to proxy report directly into your case management system so that, you know, at two o'clock in the morning in Kansas City, if a manager in Singapore is told something, they can put it into the system and make sure it's, it's tracked properly, right? Thinking about the ways in which you, and this is something I tell clients all the time when they do culture work in particular, Really think about what other sources of data do I have that would help me get a better picture of what's happening that would either mitigate something that's showing up in the culture data or tell me, oh, yeah, no, you really need to go look at this. So can you cross-pollinate culture data with manager turnover, so turnover by manager, or speed to completion of training, right? Different things that will give you quality issues or safety issues, right? If you are a manufacturing company with great data set of of health and safety issues, take your culture survey results and lay them on top of your, your, your health and safety data. If you've got a manager who has a history of slip and falls, do you also have a manager who has a bunch of employees saying, no, I didn't say anything? And how do those two things go together? So that's, that's, uh, yeah, I think... I think the government is pushing companies hard to think about the ways in which they can um, figure out what their employees aren't telling them about what's happening inside the business. Eric, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted more information on Ethisphere, the topics we've touched on today, or perhaps even get a copy of the report would be the best place for them to go. Yeah, so they can go to ethisphere.com forward slash culture. And that is the landing page for this particular report that we just issued. You can also there register for and watch the webcast that we did with a couple of my colleagues talking about some of the findings in a little bit greater detail and particularly showing some of the ways we've seen clients use the data from the report to make change inside their organizations. So I definitely encourage you to check all of that out. Tom, at our Global Ethics Summit in April, we are going to be talking culture from every corner. 
there's every day of the Global Ethics Summit, there's something related to culture on it. So there'll be much more coming on all of this from us because, you know, it's when you've got a, a data set this big, we feel a real obligation to uh, to mine it. Well, Eric, I wanted to thank you again. I look forward to continuing our conversations. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's always a pleasure. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will join me for our next episode where we take up another deep dive into compliance. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please uh, send me an email or give me a shout out. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.